go ahead and get your Bibles turned to Exodus 17. So I, um, as I told you earlier, our pastor's gone. So I, I love this opportunity to do it. I grow more probably than anybody that would ever hear me speak during the times that I planned for this. And this morning I thought, I thought about saying, saying to you guys, you, oh, you're just stuck with me, but you know what? You're not stuck with me. You're, you're going to get a heavy dose of Jesus. That's what you're stuck with this morning, okay? And, um, and I'm excited about that. So turn your Bibles to um, Exodus 17, but I also want you to put a tassel in 1 Corinthians 10. <clears throat> I think you guys kind of wasn't awake enough when Jacob read that to you earlier, so we're going to re- revisit some of that. Some of you may have paid attention through the third song. I could see your mind's getting there. I think you're all ready right now. So 1 Corinthians 10, that'll come later, and then go right back to Exodus 17. Um, what I loved this week, um, it's an amazing chapter and an amazing book, and um, I'll give you a little backstory of how I got to do this, and I'm going to actually preach next week too. Is So Hunter knew he was going to miss today, he was going to be gone on vacation, and he asked me about six weeks ago to, uh, to cover this time slide. And so if you've been here, you know we've been going through Exodus, so we were kind of looking down the road of, okay, this time frame, it's going to be Exodus 18, yeah, right, so we were in agreement with that, and and so, um, so I've been planning on that, I've been reading that, and then last Sunday he ends 16, and I'm like, oh, uh, and in the parking lot, I'm like, what about 17? He's like, yeah, I, just, I didn't really, I didn't get there, and I'm like, whoa, man, if you know about 17, and you'll learn about it really quickly, I'm like, 17, if you take 12, uh, chapter 12 and verse 17, I think they're the most gospel-rich chapters in the whole book of Exodus, and so I, I asked him, please, would you let me continue 18 next week, and cover 17 this week, and he says, yeah, awesome, let's do that. So I'm, I'm excited. I've been in awe this week as I've been studying, as I've been thinking. I've read Exodus numerous times in my life, but as you, again, preach or teach, you are, you're, you're called to expose more things there, and so as I've looked to overturn rocks, and we'll get into a rock in a minute, uh, I've uncovered a lot of really cool nuances that I'm always blown away with God, uh, I know Stoney and I talk about this a lot. We can live to be a thousand years old, and we can never uncover the depths of what God has revealed to us in His Word. It's amazing. This week's been awesome. So, Exodus 17, this morning we find ourselves looking again. I'm setting this up. We're going to read it. We're looking at the freed Israelites, okay? That's important to understand. They have actually been freed from slavery. So the first Part of that was, you know, they were in slavery and, and God called Moses and Moses was supposed to go to Pharaoh and all that back and forth. And then the plagues, you know, we've been through all of that and they've been, they've been freed now. So it's really important to realize as we read here, we're reading about a freed people who were once in bondage to the Egyptians, but now they're free. And after all the plagues um, on the Egyptians, so the Israelites in chapter 13 were not just freed 14, but they were also spared. So once they let them go, uh, then they were like, no, let's go back. Let's go get them. And, and so they were attacking. The Egyptians were coming for them, and God spared them, right? So he let them cross the sea. Uh, Moses used the rod, and he, and he struck, and then the waters collapsed on, on the Egyptians. So they've seen a lot. They've seen um, the uh, plagues that they were held from. So they saw the Egyptians being plagued. And they were being spared. They've been set free. And then all of a sudden you have this major event with the crossing of the, the Red Sea. And they've seen that. So it's really important to know where we're going today. 
what they've experienced, what they've seen recently, and it's, it's quite amazing. So before we get into this passage, passage together, though, I'd like to make you aware of two things. You may be aware of it, you may not, but I want you to think about it as we plow through this today. Number one is, there's not much difference between us and the Israelites. And what I mean by that is in the fact that we both struggle with trusting God. There's not much difference. There's one. Number two is, there is and always has been one people of God and not two. Now, I preached on Romans 3 um, several months ago, and I hammered that point. And I didn't hammer it. I was just regurgitating what Paul hammered. So Paul hammered it. It was very, very clear. There's only one peoples of God. There's not the church, and then there's Israel, and God deals with them separately. Some people think that. It's a common idea in Christianity. It's not true. Um, Galatians 6.16 calls the church the Israel of God. There's one biblical backup of that. Ephesians 2.14 says, For He, Christ, is our peace who has made the two groups one. Okay? Um, God's people, whether Israelites or the church today, have always been and will always be saved by grace through faith. Whether you're a Jew or a saved Gentile, you have come to know the Lord and be changed by the Lord and justified before the Lord by grace through faith. It's always been that way. So, uh, we will read the chapter also in its entirety. I'm getting ready to do that. But I want you to know the focus today is going to be on the first seven verses. I'll make a comment or two about, on the end about the last part. Uh, but we're going to read that now. So, are everybody ready? I'm looking around. You ready? You, you're, you're, here we go. You're going to get a heavy dose of Jesus. Kaki, you ready? Okay, she's laughing. All right, let's read. I'm going to read the whole text. Okay. Exodus 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Who, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children a livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff in which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and, they became, and, and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Come, or choose, sorry, some of our men and go out to fight with the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. 
So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered, and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of the Amalekite from under heaven. Name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted against us, the Lord, the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Let's pray. Father, as we begin to uh, expose why it is that you give us uh, even Exodus, but especially this part of this writing, I pray that you're honored, you're glorified, that we're strengthened, that you um, shape our minds because we know more about you, we know more about Jesus, we know more about his finished work, we see it in a different way and it makes us live for you, it makes us speak for you, it makes us praise your name. Father, this moment of time is helpful to us, Father, if you are here. Please let it be helpful for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, quickly how we forget, right? It's a condition, it's a natural sinful condition that we have. Our pastors spoke about it before. We're so quick to forget. You think about why do we do this? Why do we do the Lord's Supper? We were talking about that in Sunday school. These are all things to help us to remember because we're people that are quick to forget. And so if we look back in our past, we can see that clearly um, when you think about um, things that, that we've forgotten about quickly. You know, remember that day is September 11th, 2001. What did that do to our country? That was a, a uniting thing. Uh, there was people who uh, didn't, weren't, uh, weren't against each other. There was more unified Americans at that time. Uh, if you were old enough to be there and, and, and live through that, you remember that. But how long did that last? Not very long. A few months to a few years, what do we see now? We see division, war, riots, right? Anti-American. Um, but what about our own lives as believers? You know, we, we think about things like when we lose loved ones, we get bad medical reports, we lose jobs, we lose homes and other tough, difficult times. We, we Sometimes we cling to God tighter in that time. We're humbled. We become more faithful in that moment, right? We all do that uh, as believers. Uh, but as soon as we get away from the things that aren't, aren't going well and things start to change and the things are going well, what happens? We quickly become, what, more prideful and arrogant, not as thankful, uh, we, we, we move about our life as though we don't need God again, right? It's just a natural thing of, of a sinner. This is exactly where we find the Israelites themselves. So as I mentioned, these people have gone through some very troubling circumstances. 
They've also saw God deliver them each and every time. Can you believe the things they've seen? You know, these miracles they've seen. They've seen um, the Egyptians lose their firstborn. Can you imagine the sound in that city, that town, that night as that was happening? Could you imagine the Israelites hearing the sound of that horror? And, and guess what? Did they experience that? No. Why? Because God spared them. Think about what they've seen. And we, and we sit there and we're, we're amazed by that. So we see all of that, but yet we're here. And what we just read, we're, we're here. We're like, how are we back here again? So they were camping. And they, as they were camped, there was no water to drink. Okay? Could you imagine having no water? As I have a bottle of water sitting here at my feet. Could you imagine having no water? I mean, that's a very, very big deal. And I'm not in any way making light of that. Having no water, that's a big deal. Um, I couldn't imagine my sinful heart. To not have water. I mean, I grumble and complain about things that are a lot less severe than not having water to drink. I couldn't imagine. I, I get that. So I'm asking you the question, how would you respond? I mean, reflect on how you would respond. Um, notice their response. Verse 2. It says, So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? And after they'd seen God deliver them time and time again, did they come together and pray? No. Did they come together and beg Moses, Moses, please, I know God's given us so much, but here's another time where we need it. It's water. Nope. They demanded it. Demanded water. Even to the point, verse 7 says, look at verse 7. It says, they ask this question, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord here or not? I mean, that's it's pretty bold. After what they've seen, what God's done, it's very bold. So I would say to you, there it is. There it is. The sinful condition. Can we relate to that? I can. The Israelites are no different than us. So essentially, here's what they're asking. Where is God? Where is He? Where is God? Where are you? We have no water. Give me water. Where is God right now? Is He even here? That's what they're asking. And this question is at the heart of atheism. The self-proclaimed atheist says... That God has not sufficiently revealed Himself to them. That's what they say. At least not in the way that they would have done it if they were God, right? So they look around at the wickedness and the death and the disease in the world and they say, See, no God. No God. There was a God, you wouldn't see that. This wouldn't have happened to me. I wouldn't have lost them. I wouldn't have had this disease. See, no God. The heart of atheism. So they think, if there was a God, where is He? Now the Israelites know there's God. He's been there. He's delivered them. But essentially, they're asking the question, where is God? Because their arrogant 
prideful heart believes that they are owed water. Owed water. Owed it is what they believe. But are the atheists the only ones who asked this question of God? Think about it. What about us? People who believe God, and not only that, we trust in the finished work of Jesus. We call ourselves Christians. We believe the Bible is true and inerrant. We want to follow it. But yet there's times in our life we respond just like they are. Uh, Vody Balkum, one of my favorite um, pastors and theologians, I think I mention him every time I preach, he said that... Um, he said, an Israelite would look at us today and say, hey, you're asking where's God? Takes one to know one. Takes one to know one. We're just like, we're just like the Israelite. We're just as sinful, just as wicked. So when, when we read the first chapters of Exodus, especially 16 chapters, we get to this chapter and I think, I read, I read it and I think, how in the world... Are they grumbling about anything? Right? You get the sense of that? How are they grumbling about anything? God has shown He's going to deliver them. It's kind of like the disciples. You know, they were on the boat with Jesus, and Jesus was asleep, and the storms were coming, and they were like, hey, wake up! We're going to die! I'm like, I don't think Jesus come to die in a boat. I think you're all right. <laughs> right? I think you're okay. So Pastor Hunter said this last week. He said that when we grumble and complain, when we boil it down, the root of the issue is because we don't trust God. We're essentially asking the same question, where is God? Right? Where is He? Because if He was here, I wouldn't have this circumstance. Okay? We're presuming that if God was God then the challenging time we find ourselves in would not be happening. That makes sense to you? We act as if God somehow owes us something. Now this is bad news for us. You know, you're looking at me like, yeah, I believe you, you're right, I hear that, and I hate that. I hate it too. It's bad news. It's bad news that we are wicked. It's bad news that we are wretched. It's bad news that we are a sinner. We hate that, and we must hate that as believers because it, it exposes the truth that we, along with the Israelites, are very sinful people. No one wants to hear that. We're, we, we, we're in a world today where people say things like, Oh, you're 99% of the world is good people. It's just a few. No. That is the opposite of what the Bible tells us. Complete opposite. And thousands and hundreds of thousands of people sit at these men's feet every Sunday and listen. It's a shame. It's not true. We're all in a in sinful condition. So let's read it. Look at verse 4 through 6. Let's look, get back into the text. It says, Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. So stone him. So I mentioned earlier they're demanding it. 
They're really demanding it, right? They're going to stone this guy. I don't know how more demanding you can be than to almost get ready to stone people. So at this point, I'd like you to think about this. Would you say, of these people, would you say that these people deserved God's mercy in giving them water or justice? What do they deserve? Think about it. Mercy or justice? These sinful people, I hope you say duh in your mind, these sinful people like us deserve justice. Emphasis on the like us deserve justice. And this justice should come as wages. Romans says that the wages of sin is death. Notice the Lord's answer here. It says, go in front of the people with the elders and take in your hand the staff in which you struck the Nile. And I've read that three times and I've read it slowly every time because that's very important. This is very, very significant. If you remember in the story, this staff was used to do other things, become a snake, right? Remember that? He didn't call it the staff that he used to turn into a snake and that kind of thing. He says, it, take the staff that you used to strike the Nile. It's the same staff. This is how the Word of God describes it. Also, he was commanded to strike the rock. Is there any significance to that? Or is that just a random request? Oh, there's a rock over there. Looks good. Strike that one. So I'll address each of these, these two things. Number one, start with this. Let's start with a rock. I ask you to hold a tassel in 1 Corinthians 10. Go ahead and turn your Bibles there now. As I get a little bit of water, thank God I have water. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Wow. Think about it. What about the rock? More on a minute. More on that in a minute. What about the staff? Number two. Is there any significance that God told him to specifically use the staff that he used to strike the Nile? I'm sure it is. Sure. By the way, nothing in this world is random. Not just in the Word of God, but nothing in the world is random. There's no such thing as random in a universe created and ruled by an all-sovereign God. I even um, encourage you today, if you use the words luck, random, and chance, to eliminate them from your vocabulary, because there's no such a thing. Not in a world controlled by an all-sovereign God. Um, there's been uh, a theologian that I know said there's not a maverick molecule in the universe means there's not one bit of dust out of place 
outside the control of a sovereign God. So is it, is it important to know um, that God was specific about why to use this rod, why he called it the, the staff that he used to call, strike the Nile? Absolutely. Think about this. Exodus 7, God tells Moses to take the staff and strike the water of the Nile, and it changes to blood. Remember that? This was an act of judgment, justice, remember, on the pagan and idolatrous Egyptians. Did they deserve that? Did they deserve justice? Sure they did. Absolutely they did. This morning, I want you to know that the Bible and the Word of God, all of it points to Christ. All of it. So we should read Genesis to Revelation with one thought in mind. Where is God and where is Jesus? And we often hear sometimes pastors that take characters in the Scriptures and make them the hero. You think you know what I mean by that? None of them are heroes. God is the hero of the Bible. We are sinners in need of, in need of God to grant us mercy. Make sense? So, so God's Word over and over screams from beginning to end that He is the one that gives mercy and grace, and we can only hope that He will grant it to us. He'll give it to us. So God isn't looking for heroes to rise up so He can bless them. He was looking for people to repent of their sins and trust in Him alone. So what's the point of this passage? What's the point of any passage found in God's revealed Word? It is for us to see that God is a God of mercy and we desperately need it. We deserve to be struck with the staff that brought justice to the Egyptians. Their livelihood and source of all things to them that were considered blessed was the Nile and that was turned to blood. This is a deserved justice of anyone who trusts in anything but the true and living God. But God, in His great love for His people, and not because they were and we are somehow deserving, grants mercy and grace. That's good news, right? He grants mercy and grace. For the, for the Israelites here, they weren't struck with the justice that came from the staff, but the rock was. Let me say that again. The Egyptians... The Nile was struck with the staff, turned to blood. They deserved it, yes. The Israelites, demanding water, stone this guy. Give me water, God. Where are you? Are you even here? Give us water. Hey, Moses, take the staff that you used to strike the Nile in justice. But this time, strike the rock. The justice that the Israelites deserve was taken out on the rock. The rock took the blow of judgment for the Israelites. Are you awake today? (laughs) The rock took it. The staff that brought justice, that should bring justice, because God is just. But God is also merciful. He says, no, not, not justice this time, but mercy. It's not a free pass. Something's getting struck. 
It was the rock. What does Paul say? Who's the rock? The rock is Christ. The rock was struck. The rock was struck. Isaiah 53 says Jesus says this of Jesus, that it pleased the Lord to crush him. It pleased the Lord to crush him because in his great glory, he alone redeems people. There is no other way to be made right with God outside of the grace and mercy of God. There's no way. And in his great love for us, was displayed in striking of the striking of the God-man Jesus, because Jesus is the rock. John 4 says, Whoever drinks of the water that I give them shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become a well of water, springing up to eternal life. John 7 says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Revelation 21 says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Also in John 4, the woman at the well was told, If you knew the gift of God and who it is, and who, it is who says to you, Give me drink, you will have asked Him and He would have given you living water. He also said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give to them will never thirst. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is our rock. Jesus took our deserved punishment and has given us living water. Amazing living water without end. He is our water. We deserve blood. He gives a well of life-giving water. Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our uh, substitute. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. The psalmist writes, 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So what do we do with Exodus 17? We, we praise. We repent. We trust Jesus alone. We fall on our knees to God and worship Him, worship Him for providing the living waters that flows from the rock. In closing, I'd like to make one comment about verses 8 through 15. Okay, one comment. As the Israelites defeated the Amalekites, God is showing us many things, but I want to close with this one thing, and it's this. Praise team, come on up. It's this one thought on that section. You can read it again. Not only God, does God grant salvation for His people through the rock, He also continues to go before us. Okay? So today... I call you to this. Let's grumble less and trust more. Very simple. Let's grumble less and trust more. Let us remember that God is a God of our salvation and He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. And if you're here this morning and you have not bowed the knee to Jesus, then know that the justice of the staff that struck the Nile is coming.
You deserve this because you're a sinner. We deserved it. I deserved it because I'm a sinner. But God says, no. The rock was struck for me. I deserve the justice of the rod, the staff that struck the Nile. But God says, no. Not for Him. Not for you. He struck the rock. We're all a sinner. We all deserve that staff. But some of you today are being called to fall on your knees and fall, fall into the arms of the mercy seat of Jesus because there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to get water. You're going to get blood. That's what's coming. But the good news is, if you trust alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you have a drink that will, there has no end. There will be a tree of life one day that will feed us in a restored Eden that will feed us for eternity. For eternity. Let God restore you today. Fall on your knees. Trust in Jesus alone. Repent of your sins as we stand and sing.